I got to know Jenny Lynn when she went to Covenant Seminary to uh, get her Master of Divinity, so she is divine. And, um, and uh, I guess, Jenny Lynn, before you went to seminary, you were involved in youth ministry for six years? Five or six years. Involved with, with working with, with youth ministry. And since she has graduated from seminary, she has been the, became the director of women's ministries at Crossroads Presbyterian Fellowship in Maplewood, as well as out in Creve Coeur, which is all in the St. Louis area. They have two sites. And that's a church where my wife and I worship together uh, with, with those folks for most of our time in St. Louis. So I've seen Jenny Lynn in action and uh, know that she has spoken many times uh, on this topic as a single person herself and dealing with these things. And I thought, boy, I couldn't ask for anybody better to understand the single singles experience in this area than Jenny Lynn. So I've asked them to, I asked them to get together and start talking, and they have. And um, I'm just going to shut up and let Tom and Jenny Lynn share uh, their wisdom with us. So, Tom, I think you're up first, aren't you? And then Jenny Lynn can correct all your mistakes. Okay. Well, I didn't know she was divine when I started this program, but uh, yeah, well, thank you, Bob. And thank, well, that's. I uh, want to make sure you know my wife is here, uh, and she's sitting next to Bob. Raiden and I have. We're both. Uh, married and then divorced, and we were both unmarried for about 14 years, and now we're close to 32 years of marriage. Um, We were both about 10 years old when we met. But good to be here with you, and thanks for coming this afternoon. uh, There's so much to say, and knowing myself, I know that I will want to say it all, so we won't We'll be here till 5 or 6 this evening if I don't discipline myself. And Jenny Lynn is going to speak too. So I'm going to, I'm going to dive in and go uh, as fast as I can without, without losing my ability to make some sense. But we're living in a, in a much different world, a much different culture than the one I grew up in. I grew up... I'm still growing up, I guess, but I I grew up basically back in the 40s and the 50s. And uh, nobody talked to me about sex in those days. I mean, I began to discover it when I was fairly young. And I think for a while I just thought something was wrong with me because... I didn't know if anybody else knew about it. I never heard about it until I got around some older boys who told a lot of jokes. But the responsible adults in my life simply did nothing to help me understand this growing thing that was happening in my body and in my mind as I began to notice girls. My mom and dad... Bless their hearts. Nobody ever taught them how to do this, so they didn't know how to talk about these things. And and mother and dad gave me no instruction. They did give me, however, an impression because once in a while, the topic of sexual things would, would be suggested. And when that happened in our home, my mom and dad made it clear to me that this was something you didn't talk about. 
So it wasn't, I wasn't very old before I began to get the clear impression that it was a little bit shameful to bring these things up. And of course that meant that I internalized the shame. Anybody who would bring up shameful stuff must be a shameful person. So I began to feel bad about sexuality. But I was also getting more and more intrigued with it. So the more you think about it, the more you think you're a bad kid. The church, and I grew up in the church. I don't have to tell you that in those days the church didn't talk about this. Except you would, you would hear, every now and then, you would hear a sermon or a Bible lesson of some sort that would speak against sexual sin. So you heard the Seventh Commandment sermons. You would hear about fornication. And so the church was also giving me the message that sexuality itself was a bad thing. Or at least it was a bad thing to think about it if you were a young boy. So my family, my church, even the school said very little until I, because I became a junior. I took a class which we called health, and the health class had a chapter on the reproductive system. And, for, and I'm now 16 years old, and for the first time in my life, a responsible adult stood up and talked about sexual things. And that in itself was extremely healthy. To, to, to have this business that I thought about so much addressed by a responsible, intelligent adult was healthy. It was as if he was saying, this is something you should know about. Now, by that time, you're 16 years old, you know, I'd read enough of the stuff on bathroom walls to, to have a real education, so I, I knew a lot of stuff. Probably had a twisted view of a lot of it. But what he was giving us was basically biology. He taught about body parts and body functions and taught about the uh, gestation period and the the birth of a child. There was a little bit, of, I remember in those classes, a little bit about venereal disease, but not one single word from him or any of the adults who I had talked to up until that time in my life. Not one single word about the meaning of sexuality. Or about any reasoning on which you could decide how to make moral decisions about sexuality. The implication, the bottom line that I drew from the childhood instruction that I did not get was that there was no meaning. This was something that could bring you a whole lot of pleasure, a whole lot of fun. Sex could be really neat. You got that idea. It could also be really scary because a lot of people got in a whole lot of real trouble because of sexual stuff. And nobody was helping me think it through.
Nobody. I don't think I ever got any real help, even though I went to college and went to seminary and trained to be a pastor and became one. And uh, it was after my former wife walked out on me and I realized that all of a sudden I was a grown man in midlife and beginning to battle with sexual issues that I had battled with as an adolescent that I began to actually look for something I could study. I was still an adolescent in a lot of ways and I needed answers and by this time the society was talking about sex enough that there were some serious things you could read and I began to study and I, I came to the conviction and it's one that's deeply held today. I came to the conviction that even today in this so-called liberated sexual society where we, you know, ever since the 60s, sex has been everywhere. It's, it's up front. We see it in the billboards and the TV shows and nothing is advertised without sex, sex, sex. I mean, it's all over the place and we all think we know all about it. We all think we're really mature and we really understand sexual stuff. And almost nobody, at least out in the public displays, almost nobody talks to you about at least the biblical meaning of sexuality. Nobody had to me. I told, when I was first asked to talk about this stuff at the old Fresh Start seminars that Bob and I used to work in, I remember making the remark that the first Christian adult who I ever heard stand up in public and talk about sexuality was me. That's frightening. I had never heard a talk by a Christian leader trying to explain the stuff that I want to explain to you this afternoon. I want to keep myself wide awake and aware of time here so that I don't take Jenny Lynn's time later. But I do want to talk to you a little bit about what sexuality is. And maybe some of you are in the places where I've been, and maybe this will be valuable to you. I sure hope so. But all the stuff we're talking about here this weekend begs for a definition. It begs for us to understand that sex is more than what our culture seems to tell us. It's, it's more than entertainment. It's more than sport. It's more than a way to have pleasure. It's something more than that. God himself created it and gave it to us as a gift. It's God's beautiful creation. I think we all know that by instinct, something deep in our souls tells us this is a wonderful thing. But with all the other messages that the culture often gives us and all the realities that we're aware of, all the dangers that you can enter into in the sexual area, cause us to be real cautious about our own thinking. What, what in the world is it? Well, God gave us, gave us something wonderful. He gave us our sexuality. He created us male and female. 
And that's beautiful. And that's wonderful. But all the stuff that you hear in our culture, I mean, I'd be surprised if you've heard anything much else unless you've been in a very good church or had some very good adult leaders who've taught you. Everything that you hear about sexuality is that it's all about the body. Sex, or, sex and sexuality is all about what a man and a woman can do with their bodies, and that's true but it's only half of the truth. There's another side to our sexuality, and that's the spiritual side. Sexuality is about both the body and the spirit. When God gave Adam and Eve bodies which could be joined, he meant business. He wanted them to unite. The first time Adam and Eve had sex in the garden, God didn't hide his face in embarrassment and say, oh my gosh, I never dreamed they would do that. It's exactly what he designed them to do, to be united physically so that they might multiply and replenish the earth, as it says in Genesis. Of course, sexuality was created to be a way of giving life to new people. But the meaning beneath that and the meaning that gives physical sex its meaning and its dignity is that he meant for those two people to be united in spirit as well. You realize, of course, that two total strangers can have sex. Two complete strangers who will never meet each other again can have sex on a Saturday night. And it doesn't mean for a minute that they intend to bring their lives together, to unite their spirits, to live as one. The Bible calls it one flesh. Flesh there doesn't just mean the body, it means... It means one union of two human beings, two lives. Sexual intercourse is actually symbolic of marriage. It's actually symbolic of two people bringing their lives together. And what they do physically is a symbol. You realize that the body is basically designed to express the messages of the soul. If I shake your hand, shake my hand. That's a physical touch of two people touching here. We're just shaking hands. But it has meaning. It should have meaning. It should mean, hey there, how you doing? I hope life is good. I'm good to meet you. There's a, there's a communication that should be, that's intentional message that you send with your body. Now, you can be a phony you can be a total phony. I can shake your hand and say, hey, good to meet you. I, couldn't, I can't stand you. I don't want to meet you. I don't want to know you. But I'm giving you the high five and smiling like it really means something. You can be a liar with your body. You can do things with your body that are not sincere. And, of course, you can see the implications that has for sexual things. You can have sex with somebody and you could care less about them. Rape is sexual. I don't think it's 
sincere. Prostitution is sexual. Do you think it means these two people love each other? Not at all. It means people are using each other. But what my message is here is that God's design was that what we do with our bodies would express the sincere intention of our souls. This really provides the moral basis for the Bible's teaching that sex between unmarried people is sinful because they don't possess what sex symbolizes. Sex means they're going to be partners for life. They're going to be one flesh. And if you play games with sex, you're violating the God-given meaning of sex. I have an illustration. I've used this many times. Bob probably knows what's coming. But there, uh, one of the best things I've ever seen to illustrate the, the idea is in an old movie called Annie Hall. It's a Woody Allen movie. And Woody Allen's not exactly a great expert on Christian values, but he uh, sometimes asks really good questions. And in Annie Hall, he's... He plays a character named Alvy, and if, have you ever seen the movie? It's an old movie. Some of you may have never heard of it. Um, he, his name is Alvy. He's dating a girl named Annie Hall. She's played by Diane Keaton. By the way, that's Diane Keaton's real name. And uh, he and Annie Hall are having a relationship, but they're not doing very well. They're struggling, but in the, there's a scene in the movie where they get in bed together and they begin to have sex. And it's done very discreetly. They're both under the covers. But just as soon as this begins to happen, she does the weirdest thing. Annie Hall divides into two people on the screen. And one of them gets out of bed, and she's kind of ghostly. You can kind of see through her. She gets out of bed and goes over and sits in a chair and kind of looks back at the two of them in the bed like this. She's obviously bored. So here she is in bed with Alvy having sex, but her spirit is over here, and her spirit is unhappy. And as soon as she does that, He's over here in bed with her body, but he turns and looks at her spirit. He knows that she just left him. And he looks at her and says, see, that's what I mean when I say you are removed. So you get the impression this has happened before. They try to have sex and she leaves him and he knows it. And she's over there in the chair, and she says, kind of like, look, don't start with me. And she says, look, you've got my body. What's she mean? She means that's all you care about. You don't love me. You love that. I understand that. I, I get that. I've talked to many, many people who, even married people, especially women, who feel like the only thing their husband cares about is sex, but he doesn't want to know them. He doesn't want to know their spirit. Woody's, or Alvy, he's over here in bed with her. She says, you've got my body. He looks at her and he says, no. 
I want the whole thing. What's he saying? It's, it's not true that all he wants is her body. He wants the whole thing. He wants her. He wishes she would give herself to him. And so you got this woman who feels like all her man cares about is having her body, and you've got this man over here who feels like all she will give him is her body. But they're both looking for something more than mere sex. They're both looking for something deeper than that. They would both like to be loved faithfully. They would both like to be honored. They would both like to feel respected. They want the whole thing. And I'm suggesting that what Woody Allen was trying to do in that movie was indicate something that is true for all of us. Nobody except the most debased kind of person is just interested in having sex, regardless of the interpersonal. All of us are looking for somebody who would love us and who would give himself or herself to us. And I'm saying to you that I think that's what God designed sexuality for, to bring two people together, body, yes, and soul, body and spirit, whole life union. That's what Genesis means by one flesh. That's why Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians that to have sex with a prostitute is evil. And the reason is because all you're doing there is bringing two bodies together. But the Bible said they shall be one flesh. Read that passage sometime. I think it's, what is it, chapter 6, 1 Corinthians 6 or 7. Sex is spiritual. And if you don't think so, your sexual experience will always end up in pain. It'll never be just fun for a Saturday night. It'll be anguish. And people who have really lived a life of uh, sexual craziness always have scars. Never forget a young woman who I met many years ago who'd been hitchhiking on the highways for three or four years. She said she came to a little Christian coffee house and became a believer in Jesus. And she told us she'd probably slept with a thousand men. That was her way of getting around the country, hitchhike with truckers. And she had almost no ability, almost no ability to trust a man or to believe in love because all she had ever known was betrayal, men who would use her and leave leave her. And she was also aware that she'd done the same thing to those men. But the pain was because sexuality is spiritual, and she knew it. Well, anyway, (coughs) thinking about all of this, I want to go just a little further and uh, comment. Well, there are so so many other things. This is a good time to sell books. If uh, any of you are interested, there's a couple of books over here that uh, I wrote in my spare time one weekend. Um, These are written from the point of view of single, again, experience. 
written for the Fresh Start program. But there's quite a bit in here on what I've been talking about. The biggest part of this is about the meaning of sexuality and the struggle that singles have. This is called Sex and Love When You're Single Again. And this one over here is a much longer book called The Single Again Handbook. And you might think if you've never been married that they have no value for you, but they possibly could have, so you might take a look at them later. I want to just spend a few quick moments suggesting how you go about making moral choices. Um, let me mention four things. These are not original with me. I've seen them in other, in other books. But a lot of people have never had any instruction whatsoever about how you make a moral choice. I'm going to name four things quickly, and then we'll have a little time for some uh, um, questions and maybe even some answers. <clears throat> the Bible indicates that we're responsible for what we do with our bodies. And one of the areas of responsibility is what we do sexually with our bodies. How do you make choices? The first morality that I will mention is, I'll call it the morality of caution. In the morality of caution, you only ask one question of yourself. And that question is this, will I get hurt? I'm cautious. So there's some cute little person who attracts me, and I think, well, we might have sex. Should I or should I not? Well, here's the question. Will I get hurt? Now, I'm going to point out that that's a totally self-centered question. All I'm thinking about is my safety. The little instruction that I got as a kid was that if you have sex, you could get a disease. Well, I don't want a disease, so I need to be safe, right? Safe from disease. So I do the things that hopefully will keep me safe. But I'm not thinking about the other guy. I want to do this because it looks like fun. I have strong desire. But... Will I get hurt? Well, if I can reason with myself that I probably won't get hurt, then I can do it. Because all I care about is whether I get hurt. Now, girls probably got better instruction than we did because a girl knows that she could get pregnant. And if she's not ready for motherhood, then sex might hurt. But if that's reasonably, you're reasonably assured that that won't happen, go ahead, jump in, because you won't get hurt. The second level of morality, the little higher level, a little, a little more responsible level of thinking would be the morality of concern, where you actually ask yourself if the other person might get hurt. So in that case, a young man might actually be thinking about whether or not it would be good for the girl to get pregnant. 
I mean, she's obviously 15 years old. She's too young to be a mother. I wouldn't want to do that, so maybe I choose not to have sex because I don't want to hurt her. And you might even go a little further and be thinking about the families. How, what would this do to our families if, if there was a pregnancy? That's a little bit better reasoning. That's a little higher level moral thinking to wonder about whether or not you're going to hurt somebody else. And if you decide that you might hurt somebody, then you don't do it. But if you can rationalize that nobody's going to get hurt, hop to it. Third level, and this, this is better even yet on one level. I'm going to call this the morality of personal relationship. Two people wonder if having sex will improve their relationship or weaken it. Will this be good for us in our relationship? If, if we do this, would it help us? Would we be stronger for each other? Or would we, be, would we damage our relationship? Problem with this, the good thing about it is that it raises the question to the level of the value of personal relationships. Personal relationships matter. The weakness in this approach, of course, is that there's no possible way to know whether it will help or harm the relationship until you do it. You have to, ha you have to go ahead and have sex before you can know whether or not it's going to help you. So it's no basis whatsoever. I've got, I could tell you several stories about couples that I've known who have, outside of marriage, have entered into a sexual relationship and it ended up being the thing that destroyed the relationship. One young man came to me years ago after telling me for months that he and his girl were determined to be pure. And after they failed, he came to me and said, you know, since we've been having sex, she's, been, she's changed. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I don't know, she's just moody all the time. And the question was, she wondered, now that they had done that, was he really who she wanted to be with? Was he really going to be faithful to her? And she started doing this terrible thing. She started asking him if they were going to get married. And neither one of them were prepared for marriage, and they knew it. And it wasn't too long before the relationship, which had been a pretty good relationship, it faded. I think if they had known that that was what was going to happen, they probably would have restrained themselves because they did seem to care for each other. But it changed who they were. There's only one other way that I'll mention that you can make moral choices. And that is through faith in God. Here's the big question. When you get into all these tangled questions, the big question always ends up being this one. Do, be, do I believe in God 
do I actually believe he created my sexuality? And do I actually believe he made the rules? And do I care about trusting him and being obedient? That's the question. If there is no God, if there are no rules, none of this matters. But if God himself created your sexuality and gave it to you and holds you accountable for what you do with it, and if he also died for your salvation and your fullness and your healing and your everlasting life and you owe him everything, doesn't it make sense to listen to what he says? And I can't convince anybody that these things are true. But if you believe they're true, they will become the only foundation you have for making true moral decisions. I'm assuming you're Christian people. Maybe I shouldn't assume that. But I'm saying you have to make up your mind who you are and who you want to be and who you think you're responsible to be and how you want to live to the full and especially in this area of your sexuality. And if you do marry someday, you want to be able to bring your whole life to that other person with enthusiasm and with integrity and enjoy what God created. And until then, don't waste your life in foolish things that will only undermine those goals. I've got to stop and have held a little time for Q&A and turn this over to Jenny Lynn, but I want to tell you something I saw in the newspaper in San Diego way many years ago. Uh, sometimes cartoons are just perfect. They're just exactly right. And I'm sitting in an uh, airport reading a newspaper, and here's a cartoon where this young kid is standing next to an easy chair, and in the easy chair is this old man, kind of look like me. He's an old guy. And the grandson, I guess, is saying, he says to him, Grandpa, back in your day, you didn't, we didn't have all these social diseases. What, what did you guys wear for safe sex? Grandpa says, wedding rings. Wedding rings. Safety in sexual things. Safety can only be provided by the mutual, lifelong devotion and commitment of two people who intend to bring their whole lives together. You can have sex and never get a disease. You can have sex and never get pregnant. You can have sex and never worry about what it does to your relationships. But you won't be safe because the God who created sexuality holds you accountable and wants you to be full, wants you to be whole. Think, pray for guidance. And go out there and have a great life. I wish I had more time, but Jenny Lynn is so selfish. She wants some of this time for herself, so we're going to have to give it to her in a few minutes. Any, any uh, thoughts or questions before I give you a short break? And uh, I mean, 
I realize that some of the questions are not fit for public uh, discussion, but some of them might be valuable for the group to hear. Yes. 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 Off the top of my head, seems to me like it's a terrific idea. I mean, these are things that that people very much need counsel uh, about. And uh, I have had some experience, usually it's with people who are already thinking they want to get married, the experience that I've had. But anytime you sit down and talk seriously about these things uh, with somebody who has a little experience and an ability to, to guide you, it's a good thing. You can't, I don't think you can do too much of that. Um, because everybody, feels a certain kind of uncertainty and, and uh, unsteadiness, insecurity in these areas. And uh, it's just good to talk. And, and so, yes, I think it's a good idea. But did somebody else have another question? What do I think makes a good friendship? I'm not sure I ever had a good friendship, so I'm not sure. Honesty, uh, trustworthiness, patience, any, any of the things, that, any of those qualities that, that uh, draw people together in honest ways. Uh, I have to admit that growing up, I did not have many friendships, and it's partly because I'm ex extremely selfish by nature. I like me, and I like my way of doing things. My mother used to say to me, I doubt if you'll ever have any good friends because of the way you treat people. I mean, it, most of that came out of my own insecurity. I didn't know how to get close to anybody. And so most of my friendships were either mutual interests, like somebody plays golf and I played golf, or we like the same kind of music, or we go to the same kind of entertainment, uh, but it wasn't personal. I had very few personal relationships as a young man. Didn't know how to be honest. And I, was, I was a young man. I was showing off, trying to prove to my buddies I was as smart and tough as they were. <laughs> and that's what we did, you know. We, we played games. But a good friendship has to do with op opening your heart, being honest, being vulnerable, allowing somebody else to do that, and, uh, and thinking about them, caring about them, as well as finding people who do care about you. That's not simple. That's not easy. And if you don't do that, I mean, if, if that, excuse me, if you do want to do that, if you want to build really solid friendships, but you don't want to be vulnerable and open and honest, you'll strike out. You're, you're not going to have strong friendships without those things. You may have buddies or pals, friends, uh, social friends, but real friendships take an investment of, of uh, your personhood. That's a real short answer. That, that could be a long conversation. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's cool our heels for a little while here, and we'll turn it over to Jenny Lynn. Let's say, give me, 
give us 15 minutes. Stretch your legs and get something to drink or whatever, and, uh, and we'll turn it over to her. And uh, sorry. <laughs> 